Happy Holidays from the DSR Network. We are deeply appreciative of our members and the year that we've had. To celebrate the holiday season, we are offering a 50% discount on either your first month or first year of membership. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the members-only Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of December, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month or for the first year. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSRHOLIDAY at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSRHOLIDAY. Thank you very much for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. This is that time of the week when we normally talk about things related to uh, intelligence, but this week we're going to take a little bit of a diversion from that to talk about something that is high up in the news and deserves even more coverage than it's getting, and that is the situation in Ukraine and the situation in the U.S. vis-a-vis the situation in Ukraine. I'm one of your co-hosts for this podcast, David Rothkopf, joined as I am every week at this time by Mark Polymeropoulos. How are you doing today, Mark? I'm doing great. Thanks, David. I'm just back from the Morning Joe set. And interestingly, I was going there to talk about Israel-Gaza, but they actually asked most of the questions on Ukraine, which actually I think is a good thing because I, you know, I think a lot of us have been worried that this, that this issue has gotten pushed off the front page and it should not. It so definitely should not. And I'm very pleased to see one of our guests, who's a friend, uh, giving two thumbs up to you on that or one vigorous thumb up. Uh, uh, Ambassador William B. Taylor is Vice President for Europe and Russia at the U.S. Institute of Peace. In 2019, he served as Charge d'Affaires at the U.S. Embassy in Kiev and as the U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine from 2006 to 2009. How you doing, Bill? Good, David. Very pleased to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us again. And of course, another of our friends here is Michael Weiss, who's an investigative journalist who has covered the wars in Syria and Ukraine, as well as Russian espionage and disinformation. He's also an editor at The Insider. How are you today, Michael? Very well. Good to see you again, David. Excellent. Thank you for joining us. Well, obviously, the reason we're talking about this right now is that the White House made very clear that the United States would run out of the funds it needed to support the uh, uh, efforts of Ukraine to defend itself from Russia by the end of the year. Uh, and the response of um, uh, particularly Republicans on Capitol Hill was, so what? Uh, and essentially what they have done is they have delayed the provision of this aid, which also includes in the same package aid to Israel and also aid to some critical U.S. efforts in other countries around the world, uh, because they wanted to tie it to um, some progress on immigration. Uh, The White House has made some considerable concessions in that regard, and we still don't have a bill. The Senate is coming back next week to talk about this at greater length. They may arrive at a deal, but as of right now, it looks like 
the uh, House of Representatives is out until January. Let me ask you a question, Bill. What message does this send to Russia and to the rest of the world? Well, David, Putin clearly loves this. Um, uh, he loves to see dissension in the ranks of the supporters of Ukraine. Um, um, and if he's looking carefully, if Putin's looking carefully, he will notice that actually most Republicans um, are very supportive, continue to be very supportive of Ukraine. Most Republicans do want to vote for this $61 billion to get the Ukrainians through the next year from the United States standpoint. And, and, uh, and there are some, um, and, and there are also many Republicans, just as you said, David, who want to tie this um, to other issues like uh, immigration and the, and the border. But uh, Putin loves to see dissension in the ranks of Ukraine supporters. Yeah, no, no question about that. So uh, let me ask uh, the second part of the question uh, to, to Michael, because you're in contact with people in Ukraine all the time. What do they think of the way the U.S. has uh, dithered around this? Well, obviously, they're worried about it. Um, I mean, without U.S. support, the fear is that um, their ammunition, their resupplies will dry up, and that will allow Russia to go on the offensive and take even more territory. Um, but they're also somewhat bolstered by an unexpected phenomenon, at least unexpected to myself, um, possibly to everyone else here, which is that through fits and starts and some backsliding, um, Europe seems to be getting its house in order increasingly. Um, I can point to yesterday what is a pretty sort of momentous event, which is that the Euro European Union agreed to um, discuss uh, accession negotiations or, or to embark upon accession negotiations with Ukraine and Moldova. Uh, and this is something that if you rewind the clock 10 years ago, remember, this crisis, the first invasion of Ukraine, precipitated by a popular protest movement, which was waged for the failure or the, the rescission by the Yanukovych government to uh, embark upon an association agreement with the European Union. So uh, Putin, again, master strategist, uh, could have settled for something that would basically have allowed sort of, uh, you know, education transfers and, you know, the importation of goods, but by no means full integration with the European project for Ukraine. And now what is he going to wind up with in the next few years, I reckon, uh, full member status for Ukraine in the European Union and possibly also NATO. Um, so they're very happy by what's what's taken place in, in Europe. And, you know, obviously there's been some concerns about Viktor Orban and his obstructionism. But, you know, again, I point to this sort of miraculous state of affairs where Orban, rather than oppose uh, this this decision, simply skedaddled off and, and just forfeited Hungary's veto power. And he did this at the uh, advisement of Olaf Scholz, a man who I thought was what the Brits call a wet and continue to think is a bit of a wet, um, but has increasingly shown um, some, some metal uh, and and some leadership capabilities, and I think just yesterday said, tweeted out, "We will be with Ukraine until the end. We want a, a full victory." So this is kind of a, a, a stunning turn of events. I mean, Europe finally is assuming what uh, President Macron has has demanded. You know, strategic autonomy for itself, not fully, but it's getting there. Yeah. Well, they got there half the day yesterday, actually, because half the day, you know, Orban walked out of the room and let them proceed with. Uh, the accession discussion. And then when it came to 60 billion euros in aid, 
uh, he came into the room and said, no, don't do that. So they, it, was, it was kind of schizophrenic. Uh, but, you know, progress is progress. Uh, for those of you, by the way, who do not understand uh, how important all this is to uh, Ukraine, I, I direct your attention back to the uh, underrated but excellent uh, sitcom that President Zelensky starred in, in which he played the president of Ukraine. And there's an excellent scene in the sitcom where he's on the phone. He gets a phone call from the Chancellor of Germany and it says, congratulations on joining the EU. And he goes, oh my God, this is the best thing that's ever happened. We're in the EU. This is a huge breakthrough. And this, the people of Ukraine are so happy. And then the Chancellor of Germany says, the people of Ukraine? She says, oh, I'm sorry. I was trying to reach Montenegro. Um, and... <laughs> And uh, and and he walks away very dejected. Walked away very dejectedly, but also has an expletive right in there, David. You will listen. Yeah, to no, that. no, I didn't add the expletive, but I'm glad that somebody as distinguished as you noted that he was. <laughs> there were a lot of expletives in there. Um, in any event, uh, it's it's funny, but it, it underscores Michael's point how important this is. Um, Mark, uh, before you ask them questions, what did you say in Morning Joe? So uh, as I'm very smart before I go on, sometimes I actually give Michael a call <laughs> and, uh, and think about some of the things. And so so ultimately, uh, uh, it, it is along the lines of what we're talking about here that the Europeans actually are stepping up. And, and with that in mind, I wonder if the U.S. messaging is not right, because instead of kind of countering or, or, or going back and forth with the, kind of some of the, the more extreme members of the, of the House GOP talking about a never-ending war, why don't we say, number one, that you know Ukraine is a never-ending ally, but number two is that 2024 is important. Ukraine desperately needs assistance now, but this money that the Europeans are kicking in in 2025 uh, uh, and forward is actually something that I think we should talk about more. So Americans hate this idea of this long commitment. So why doesn't the administration kind of focus more on, hey, this $60 billion is, is in the short term, but our European allies are actually really... Uh, uh, helping as well. So that is one of the things I, I uh, uh, mentioned, uh, you know, certainly today. But I think let's just to, to kind of switch, um, not switch topics, but I, I want to talk about the, the intelligence assessment that was declassified several days ago when there was, in essence, the, the U.S. Uh, uh, judgment that 87% of the Russian standing army, 300,000 Russian uh, forces had been killed or wounded since the beginning of the war. That's a stunning success. And so, you know, when you hear that, you know, then you start thinking we're about to snatch defeat from the, you know, from the jaws of victory. I mean, this is probably one of the most successful U.S. assistance programs um, that I have I've certainly seen in my career, in my lifetime. So I guess the question for go both guests um, has to do with messaging and and the messaging the administration is trying to, to, to make to kind of win over recalcitrant members of the of the House GOP. Is there something that they could do better on uh, uh, on some of the issues I just raised? Bill? So, Mark, a, a, a great question. And very you're exactly right in terms of, uh, of what the United States has provided the Ukrainians. Um, 5% of the defense budget of the United States. So our defense budget, $850 billion, and we provided some $44 billion or so to the Ukrainians. So that 5% um, has enabled the Ukrainians to do exactly what you just said, to... to to do incredible damage to one of our two main adversaries. So let's let's be clear, enemies. Um, the Russians are clearly our enemy at this point, and and the and the Ukrainians are taking them on. 
for 5% of our defense budget and with no American soldiers on the ground. Uh, there are no American soldiers uh, doing the fighting the Ukraine. And the Ukrainians are not asking for American soldiers. The Ukrainians are just asking for the tools, the weapons. Um, uh, and you're exactly right, um, uh, and David's right, um, that if we can provide this $60 billion, um, for next year, that can help accelerate um, what the Ukrainians are trying to do. And let's be clear about what the Ukrainians are trying to do. Oh, their goal is just to get the Russians out of the country. That, that's what they're after. And we're helping them to do that by providing them the tools. Uh, so that message, I think, is one that we could really emphasize. We can do we can do other things. We can deal with the border. We can deal with Israel, Hamas. We, we and we can deal for five percent of our defense budget. We can support the Ukrainians. Mike. So I, I wrote an article about this. Um, you know, if you take MAGA conservatism at its word, I mean, and and keep in mind there is no principles there, and they they pretend to mean things that they really don't. But if you take them at their word, arming Ukraine has accomplished three things that Donald Trump and his constituency claim to to want very badly. Number one, it has produced jobs in the United States, right? It has, people have this misconception of how security assistance works. So they think that we are, our tax dollars are being funneled, you know, in black suitcases and duffel bags and shipped over to keep. No, the money is being used to, well, first of all, what we do is we take ammunition and weapon systems that are antiquated and that we actually pay our own taxpayer dollars, pay to maintain and to decommission because they're so old. We are sending those hand-me-downs to Ukraine. High Mars, Attackums, all of the things that you've read about. These are old systems that have been produced in some cases decades ago. The money we are spending is to replenish those stocks with more modernized platforms and new equipment. So in, in other words, we are revitalizing the American defense sector and the American military. Let, let me just po ask a question in there. Who are we spending yeah. that money with? Where does that money go, Michael? I mean, a lot of it is going to defense contractors. Right, in the I United mean, States. It, yeah. In it, the United States. Works. So the American Enterprise Institute and, and Mark Thiessen, conservative columnist of the Washington Post, did a, a superb report about this. And they actually located, I think it was 70 cities in the U.S. across 31 states or something like that. Most of them are, are on either coast, right? Um, but these are, you know, Lockheed Martin, uh, BAE Systems, uh, you know, Raytheon. These are defense contractors that are now having to hire more workers, American workers, to staff their factories and their, their warehouses and, and manufacturing plants to produce the stuff that this money is being invested in. Uh, Secretary Blinken said 90% of security assistance that we have spent thus far, 90% of the money has been invested in the United States. So I don't think this is something that the average MAGA voter is quite aware of. And I, I'll be honest with you, I don't mean that to be condescending. I wasn't aware of it until I researched it. And I'm a journalist, you know, who has to figure out these things. So that's one. Two, as I mentioned, the re revitalization of the American military. Donald Trump want, wants a, a big, bright, beautiful army that can take on the world and confront China. Well, we're making inroads in, in, in that respect, too. And three, as I alluded to before, you know, Trump ran in 2016 saying NATO is a racket. We are the ones who, who do the heavy lifting, who spend all the money, and the Europeans are freeloaders or welfare queens. Well, defense spending across the board throughout Europe among all NATO allies is increasing, right? That 2% guideline or benchmark of what you should spend of your GDP on defense, 
increasingly more and more countries are meeting that. And in addition to which, they are also meeting more of their share of the burden to support Ukraine. I mean, I can rattle off just off the top of my head, Estonia has committed to spending 0.025% of its GDP in the next, I think, four years on security assistance to Ukraine. Uh, the Danes are spending $1.8 billion. That's quite a lot when you consider we've spent, what, $70 billion so far, and we've earmarked you know, money for another like $113 billion in total. So as I said, the Europeans are taking destiny into their own hands. And, and increasingly, the chatter, according to diplomats I speak to in Brussels, is you know, we have to do this, meaning the Europeans, because we cannot rely on the United States. If Donald Trump comes back to power and defunds Ukraine, or God forbid, takes steps to try and, and, and divorce the United States from NATO, we will have to be in control of our own security and our own defense. And that means also helping Ukraine prosecute its war. So all the things that MAGA claims to want, they're getting, and yet they say, well, we have to be done with this. This is terrible state of affairs. So they either they don't understand how it works or they don't really actually claim to want these things. It's just it's it's part of their populist messaging campaign. I don't know the answer. Yeah. By the way, everybody should go read about this intelligence study that was leaked. If 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 you haven't, nine out of ten members of the standing Russian army that existed at the beginning of the current invasion uh, reportedly um, uh, uh, taken out of action in the course of this war. Twenty two hundred uh, tanks. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. The devastation has been great. Bill, on uh, Monday night, we had a, a, a an event here in Washington uh, where we, we, I had a conversation with Jake Sullivan about what comes next. And I posed a question to him. I said, you know, uh, with the possibility that Michael was just alluding to of Trump becoming president of the United States again, uh, there is a sense that for Putin, you know, stalling is the key. You know, if you just keep in place, keep things sort of at stasis through next November, that's your best shot of a win because Trump would then change change things on the ground. And isn't it unlikely that real progress will be made? Jake's response, which I found, you know, kind of uh, slightly surprising, actually, was, uh, no, we believe we can really make some gains. If this money gets released, uh, we believe that over the course of the next year, Ukraine can make some substantial inroads against Russia uh, and advance its cause. What's your look, outlook? So I agree, David. I agree. And it's and it's, the Ukrainians can make advances in ways different from the way they've been trying to do up until you know this summer. Um, we all know that um, that NATO and the United States trained uh, trained the Ukrainians in this combined arms. Uh, with big armor thrusts uh, supported by uh, artillery and and coordinated with the infantry. Notably, there's no air cover, which is which is usually there in in NATO doctrine. But there's no air cover for the Ukrainians. But they but they were trained to use these these tanks. And uh, General Zeluzhny, whom I had a good conversation with um, uh, in in October, said to me um, that the tank is obsolete. So the tank is obsolete. Um, uh, both sides, uh, both Russians and Ukrainians, understand that this is now understand this is true, and both sides have been bloodied uh, in an attempt to break through the other side um, using big tank thrusts, um, and and it hasn't worked. You, uh, the Russians have lost incredible number of tanks and soldiers, as that uh, as that document that you just referred to, David, uh, describes. But 
the Ukrainians lost big as well when they tried to do it in, the, in June at the beginning of their counteroffensive. So, so it's going to be a different battle. It's going to be a different fight, and it's going to it's going to rely on long range fires. It's going to rely on uh, these these long range attackums, these these uh, missiles uh, that can go 300 kilometers um, with unitary warheads. That is not just this spread out. Uh, uh, cluster munitions, but with unitary warheads, they can really do some damage um, to, uh, to to Russian forces, Russian headquarters, Russian supply dumps, the bridge um, uh, at Kerch uh, and other places, um, and 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 degrade the ability of the Russians to maintain their their presence uh, in Crimea and and in Donbas. So it's going to be a different fight um, using, and, and I think Jake Sullivan's right um, with this 61 billion plus what the Europe. Europeans are doing, as Michael has just pointed out, it's not just on the on the financial side that the Europeans are stepping up. They're also stepping up on the um, on the weapons side and could further. The Germans could offer their Taurus uh, versions of Atacum uh, 300. So that could happen, but it does need our support and it needs it now. It's not we're not talking about uh, a year from now. We're talking about in the next month or two. Um, Michael, the sort of flip side of that question. Um, but, you know, if, if the money gets through, uh, you talk to a lot of Rush, uh, Ukrainian military sources. Uh, you've been through the whole, the offensive is working, it's not working, it is working, it's working, a little argument. Can progress be made next year? Yeah, I think so, um, for reasons Ambassador Taylor just gave. Um, you know, look, we have this, this comforting, actually, it's not so comforting, this, this myth that we've built up that Russia's resources are infinite, Right. We go back to World War II, human wave, Soviet doctrine, just throw everything you can. And, and I mean, indeed, Putin has lost 90% of his original invasion army. So who's who's holding the line now? Mostly you've got criminals that have been released from prisons, convicts. You've got Mobics, people who've been you know called up in this partial mobilization. But there are limits to what he can do. Um, full mobilization in Russia is incredibly unpopular and would, I think, probably destabilize his his regime in a way that we haven't seen yet. Um, they, it's true that Russia does have a, an extraordinary capacity for arms manufacturing, ammunition, shells, etc. But one of the things that I've been working on as an investigative reporter is how the West is not doing so well at enforcing its own sanctions regime and how Western equipment, particularly machine tools, without which the Russians cannot manufacture their kit, are still winding up in, in, in Russian hands. So through third party, black market economies, et cetera. There's a whole host, a full spectrum of options at our disposal, meaning the collective West, the United States in concert with European allies. And by the way, the Ukrainians themselves. So, you know, one of the workarounds for their lack of air superiority in this counteroffensive is um, a cottage industry of drones that they have been producing, first person view drones. Um, which they can control and you know it's it's the bird's eye view of, of what they're about to hit. And there are entire warehouses and facilities, mostly staffed by civil society members. I think I mentioned this on the last show I was on with you, David, um, that if the U.S. got a little more innovative and creative in how it does security assistance and stopped thinking in terms of its own NATO doctrine, but sort of became adaptive to the Ukrainian method of warfare, we could be investing in that. And by the way, a lot of that stuff is cheaper to manufacture than the stuff that we've been giving them. And you know, one thing I have to say. Um, I attended a, a big conference on security assistance in Chicago a few weeks ago, and across the room, I mean, this was these are the people who are 
paid to do this work on the American side. There was a consensus that, you know who does this really well and a lot better than we do? The British. And I said, why is that? He said, that because they embed. SAS, British Conventional Military Forces, are right there at the contact line. They're not in combat. They're not fighting the war. But they are observing at close quarters how the Ukrainians are fighting. And they see what works and they see what doesn't work. And they modify their security assistance packages and their, at their uh, advice back to London on the basis of that. And I think there's a reason, David, we're also seeing why the Brits, for instance, have been so forward leaning on a host of issues. I mean, Storm Shadow cruise missiles, that was a damn break moment in several respects. Number one, it allowed the Ukrainians to do the long range fires that, that Bill was talking about, inc- including destroying the headquarters of the Black Sea Fleet in Sevastopol. Major escalation as per a year ago, and the Russian response was basically to shrug and to put the the admiral in charge on television, even though he looked like he was in a hospital gurney. Um, Number two, it facilitated uh, progress on the front of should we or shouldn't we supply attackums. A senior U.S. official told me the Brits doing this took some of the pressure off, but it also kind of created risk mitigation. If they're going to give cruise missiles, why can't we give our ballistic artillery rockets? And lo and behold, we have given attackums, and we have more to give and, and more variants to give with longer range and different kinds of capabilities. So I think this is going to be the model going forward in 2024. F-16s, long-range missiles, and, and also, I have to be honest, and here I want to hear from Mark, covert action. You know, um, the United States doesn't want stuff winding up fired in Russia. That's okay. Uh, other countries are willing to provide things. Um, either publicly or probably not so publicly, that 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 will allow for these kinds of um, kinetic attacks deep behind enemy lines. The, the kind of thing that Gur, Ukrainian military intelligence, has already been doing. Uh, I do want to hear Mark's response to that. I would say two things first. One, I like this idea of incubating homegrown uh, defense capabilities. You know, sort of being a VC in that regard. I think that's that's that seems uh, kind of wise. Uh, and and also on the British uh, trailblazing front, you know, this past week you had David Cameron going around leading the discussion. Let's seize the take the seized Russian assets and start using those, which has started a discussion in this country. David Cameron, the British uh, Foreign Secretary, uh, having re-entered the stage, surprisingly. In any event, um, uh, uh, this is the point where we take a break and say to all of you who are not members, this is as far as you go. Uh, but you could keep coming along with us. If you remember, just go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership. It's, I think, $5 a month, not a very big deal. And uh, it helps us enormously provide wide-ranging coverage of the sort you hear every week here. We encourage you to do that. However, if you're not a member, uh, we must say goodbye at this point. If you are a member, then we say uh, stand by.